Hey there, I'm Vicki Howell, and welcome to the very first episode of Craftish, a podcast for hobbyists, artists, makers, creative entrepreneurs, you know, crafty types. This episode is sponsored by Kitterly. Have you seen Kitterly? They have the cutest curated knitting and crochet kits to make pretty much anything. Kitterly is making crafting even easier because they do all the hard work, you know, finding the right fibers and tools to go with the right project or whatever. They make it so you can just simply pick up and start stitching. And they have everything from simple scarves to advanced color work. And they work closely with your favorite designers, like yours truly. You know the ones. You're on Ravelry, I'm sure like all of the other stitchers, and you've favored them a million, million times so that you can make their projects later. Yeah, they work with them. And then what they do is they pair them with gorgeous yarn so that you can have this perfect match for your next knitting or crochet project. You can get the scoop on all of their knitting and crochet goodness at kitterly.com. So when I was mapping out pre-production for the launch of this podcast, I hadn't intended necessarily on recording the interviews in chronological order. I just figured that I'd record a bunch and then choose what I considered to be one of the best conversations to go first. It just so happens though that the first one we recorded is the first one that you'll also be hearing. Now, whether or not it's the best is for you to judge, but please don't judge me. Because the reason I chose this one wasn't for sound quality or length or even content per se. In fact, I purposely didn't listen to it again after it was over. I chose it because of how I felt during and after the conversation, which was inspired. When you have a guest who's creative, open, and generous with their ideas, you really walk away from the experience with an openness to possibility yourself. And that's that, that openness is what I'm hoping to share with you today. My guest today is Rachel Heron, the best-selling author of the novels, The Ones Who Matter Most, Splinters of Light, and Pack Up the Moon, the five book Cypress Hollow series, and also the memoir, A Life in Stitches. I first met Rachel at a gala at Vogue Knitting Live, for which she was the keynote speaker, where I ran up and practically accosted her because uh, we had really similar arm tattoos, and we hit it off right away, so I was thrilled when she agreed to come on the show. So let's meet her now. All right, Rachel Heron, thank you so much for being on Craftish. It's thank so good to see you, or Yay. hear you, rather. For, <laughs> for, the, for those listening at home, I, we're actually recording a video chat audio only for listeners, but um, I like to see people that I'm talking to because then I, yeah. I get a bonus of feeling like we're sitting down and having a real visit. And Vicki looks very pretty. She- <laughs> oh, stop. <laughs> um, they also can't see me blushing now. Um, I wanted to, so I, I want to talk about <laughs> the quadrillion major projects that you have coming out in 2016, I just, my mind has been blown. You have three books coming out in the same year. And I want to address, first of all, the insanity of that, but also the total process. <laughs> and I want to talk about your many, many jobs and all of your qualifications <laughs> and a ton of stuff. But there's something that I'd like to start with first that um, struck me as I was doing the research for um, this interview. And um it perhaps is starting in the middle and we can work outwards, but um, I wanted to start with a quote that I read from a blog post that you wrote recently for a side project that you're doing on creative essays um, and a crowdsourcing campaign that you've started for this. So you say, I want to write essays about not just writing or knitting, 
but how we manage to cobble together a creative life and one that's already full of errands and family and jobs and worrying. Essays on finding art inside chaos of every day. And the reason why I wanted to start with that is that is pretty much the reason that I started this entire podcast. Oh, Um, cool. So it was a little nugget to be able to find as I was doing the research. For me, it blows my mind how there's this big creative community. And I sort of, you know, have this philosophy that whether you're a knitter or a quilter or a writer or a musician or a filmmaker, there's there's a little nugget of something that I guess we can just call creativity, that kind of circles us all together. And what I'm really interested in is what what that is. Like, what is that nugget? But also how we're still able to feed that creativity during a time where there is an amazing amount of data and stimulus and really just expectations coming at us every moment. So mm-hmm. if you wouldn't mind, if you would talk a little bit about the essays that you want to write, why you want to write them, other than, you know, how eloquently you've already stated it, um, and then talk about uh, why you chose, well, let's start there, and then I'm going to, we'll go on from there. Okay. Well, about five years ago, I had a collection of essays come out called A Life in Stitches from Chronicle Press. And um, that was really about my life as seen through the sweaters that I'd knitted over the course of my life, you know, lifelong knitter. And um, I found through doing that, and I've been blogging for um, 15 years now, um, I found through the course of writing that book and my blog that I really, while I love fiction, I love the novels, the novel writing, that's really my passion. I'm also super passionate about writing the truth about things. Um, I learned it through that project. My editor was great. I would write these essays about a particular sweater, where I was and what I was doing when I was knitting that. And then I would send it to my editor and she would pretty much cross out all the stuff that had been easy for me to write. And she would zoom in on the one sentence that was somehow embarrassing, somehow digging into my soul, somehow a confession And she would say, okay, now go deeper, go into this. This is one I want to read about. And I realized through that that the more honest I am on the page, the more response I get from people who read my essays. And um, I've written a lot about knitting, and I wanted to expand that into creativity because I think what you say is really interesting, that we are surrounded by so much uh, stuff, so much information, so much data. We have this overload. And the world... I think is divided into these two camps. And I'm, I've always been so interested in understanding the camp that I am not a part of. And I think that everybody who listens to your podcast will be in our camp, the camp that uh, no matter how busy we are, we have to be making something that making is actually a very large part of where our happiness comes from. <clears throat> and I spend a lot of time looking out into the crowd of the people who don't have that urge who do, you know, I, I know a couple of real good friends who are wonderful people and they are content to spend their weekends on the couch watching television mm-hmm. or looking at their computer the entire time. They don't make anything. And I, I think I'm going to spend the rest of my life trying to figure out whether those people are truly not creative and that is why they're content to do that. Or if they just haven't found that creative button yet, if that hasn't been pressed, yeah. um, I have this theory that everyone 
is creative in some way. And there are some people who haven't found it yet. So if my essays can reach the people who are creative, the people who are listening to you, who, who, who are our friends who know that feeling, that's great. But if maybe it reached somebody else at some point, that would make it all worthwhile too. I so agree with the point that you make that you, you think that you believe that some people just haven't found that button, haven't found whatever speaks to them creatively. And you know what, years ago, I wrote a book called Craft Core, and I, I interviewed a, t- a ton of people, both professional and hobbyists, um, about their past. And one of the things that was so striking to me, and both within the hobbyists that I interviewed, and also with the people who we would now consider extraordinarily successful in one creative realm or another, one of the common roadblocks that they all had, now some of them climbed over that block, and some of them really didn't, was that they had been discouraged at one point in their life from being creative, whether it was that's a waste of time or even worse, you're not good at that. You're a terrible artist. You can't draw. You don't have a future in this. You don't have a future in that. And to me, and often it was by you know, art teachers or someone that as a child you would think would be the end all be all. And and by the way, I'm the daughter of a teacher. This is not against teachers. <laughs> what but what my sort of overall goal in life is is to give people the permission to be receptive to the positive conversations that are coming at them from people who are creative. To hear the perce- perception of Instead of taking the you out of that, you're not good, changing that to this may not be your yeah. uh, your creative way to express yourself. Um, for me, you know, I always say that when my boys were little, we bought them one year, we bought them a Fender Stratocaster, which is a guitar, <laughs> and then know. a knitting machine. <laughs> and a knitting machine, like oh. one of the little crank ones, right? And we tried to tell them that we don't care how you're creative. We just want you to find your path. And that doesn't matter. I mean, both my boys will likely be video game designers or some form of engineer or something. <laughs> but what I but I wonder, but what I wonder if some of these sort of more science-minded people don't consider is that this can be a love, like a wonderful conduit to opening up that part of your brain that could then make you explore your science in a more meaningful way. I think there's a reason that, you know, music in particular is so related to, you know, math and the science, the sciences, and there's so much overlap. And sometimes, honestly, when I'm doing creative things, I turn to balancing my budget and, you know, Excel and doing, and doing very more, more rigid things. And that'll open up more of my creative side. I don't know if you ever find that, you know, it's, it's that balance. That almost seems like you are tap dancing amongst two different like parallel universes. Yes. Yes. That's what it feels like sometimes, right? <laughs> what I thought was interesting also when I, I read on your website was that um, you were talking about creative time and the tools that you need, um, not need, but that you really use to sort of get yourself in that creative space. And one of them was either quiet or white noise. And what struck me about it, though, and I had never considered doing this, was that when you're ta- when you take your breaks you turn off the white noise or turn off the quiet, whatever that means, turn on music, mm-hmm. I'm assuming, or the TV or yeah. talk with your partner, whatever it is, um, so that you're training yourself in a way to be in a different mental space, even though you're in the same physical space. And I found that so fascinating. I wonder if you could speak a little bit to this. 
It's something that I actually noticed happening in my life. Um, I for for a while I usually change my routine slowly over the years, but it generally involves um, settling down slowly and usually going to a place uh, the, the same every day. You know, this cafe or that cafe. And I noticed that while I was spending you know a year or two driving this one particular direction and listening to this big band uh, station, you know, oldies from the twenties and thirties, and um, I would listen to that every day on my way to the cafe. And then as soon as I would leave the cafe from my writing, I'd turn it on to the regular radio and listen, you know, to pop songs. And I was driving the same way I usually drove to the cafe, but I happened to be going to a grocery store one morning and I accidentally hit the big band station. And suddenly I literally felt my brain shift into writing mode. I'd already done my writing for the day. I had no need to be in the writing creative space for, for that, but it actually took me there. So I realized that it's not just ritual. It's not just a night. You know, I do like rituals around my writing. I like to have a particular kind of coffee and, um, you know, my, my white noise is perfect with, especially with cafe noise in the background, but to set yourself up for success by training your brain to recognize that I think is super strong. Whenever I write a book, I I make a playlist um, and that playlist always contains songs that have been on no other playlist for no other book. And there was a, there was a song um, by Moby, a real slow song by the electronic uh, artist Moby uh, that was on the soundtrack for my book, pack up the moon. And it came on in a movie that I was watching years after the book came out. And I almost started crying because it brought back immediately every single character and every hardship that they'd gone through in that book. Um, it was, it's just such a, it's, it's, it's such a brain trick that I think is super useful and can be useful to anyone in any creative profession. If you want to summon your muse, if, if that means anything to you, um, which to me it usually doesn't, but if you want to summon that creative energy when you're, when you're throwing pots, Try listening to the same soundtrack over and over for yeah. a month and see what that does to your to, to shape your brain. Yeah, it's almost Pavlovian. You know what's interesting? Exactly. I've, I've it's funny, I don't think that I've ever put it in, into words what you just said, but I have not to the extent that you have, but I think that I definitely can feel the shift. Not to get all woo-woo on you, but I can feel the energy feels different. There's a different weight to the energy when I am in the mental space to write. And I'm not writing fiction like you are. I'm talking about if I have to write an intro blurb or an article or whatever. Um, and Definitely. I can tell if I'm if the energy doesn't feel right, I can try and force it. And if I have a deadline, sometimes I do. And it'll take me five times as long to write 500 words than it would <laughs> yes. if I feel that. And I have a playlist too, and it's the same one that I use all the time. It's called like Do Right By Jams or something. And it's a uh-huh. lot of, um, there's a band that I love that I have a friend in called Explosions in the Sky that's kind of really like electronic, uh, not electronic, but um, it's all instrumental. Um, I listen to, you know, I have this whole, there's like an Alt-J song. I, there's a rhythm to it. And so sometimes I force my, I can force the energy that way when it's not inherent. It doesn't always work. And maybe yeah. it's because maybe it's because I'm not doing what you're doing and creating separate. Maybe because I'm relying on the same pattern again and again. I'm gonna. It's not gonna. I'm not yeah. gonna evolve creatively. You might want to try it. It's yeah. fun. I use. Um, I am. I'm real passionate about supporting artists. Of course, we both are. You know, and I do listen to Spotify. And if I love an album on Spotify, then I'll go out and buy it. So yes, I own it. I do the same. I'm supporting the artist because Spotify really doesn't support artists very well. But Spotify to me is a real nice way to do it because you can throw a ton of songs in. And I find that when I'm working my way through a project, 
I'll be listening to a song that I've heard already, you know, 40 times and suddenly it will be jarring and I'll have to throw it out. It's no longer part of the playlist. Mm. It just didn't quite fit with what I'm doing. And a lot of times when I'm finishing a novel, I'm in that last homeward drive on the revisions. I will notice my brain having that feeling to one particular song and I'll just put it on repeat and I'll generally winnow this list down to one song and listen to it on repeat for maybe a week, which is crazy, but no, it's the I one totally that my brain reacts you. to, the one that my brain completely tunes out, and I'm very, 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 very focused. Yeah. I did that this week. This week, there is a cello band, so random, so random, because <laughs> I, you know, um, that my husband and I had discovered years ago in the subway, like in a subway station in New York when we were visiting, oh, that's awesome. and now they're like kind of, you know, they're doing very well in their genre. Tons of fans are called Break of Reality. And they put up a um, a video of themselves on YouTube playing a cover of a Weezer song. And it was so awesome. And I, I must have played that song 20 times that day because I could feel that energy shift. I had yes. it on repeat. And I don't know yes. what I was doing, but suddenly I was just, I felt creative again. And... <laughs> I just listened to it again and again and again. And then when I was done, I was done. Yeah, but it's you're done. interesting how, I mean, that's obviously not something that's conscious. I mean, I don't know what's yeah. going on. But, but I think working. what you're doing there is you're, you're actually, you're, you're talking about something I love to talk about, which is acting on that impulse. Um, there's a lot of shoulds in this world that we don't even know we have. You know, you shouldn't listen to a song over and over again. That's not okay. You should listen to them whole album or, or listen to a shuffle. That's just what we're told. But you, because you are willing to act on that creative impulse, you're okay. Just putting that song on play repeat over and over all day. I think that's part of the creative process is listening to what works for you. And for other people, it could be, you know, this particular black tea works when they are settling down to write a knitting pattern. And this particular green tea doesn't, that's for, you know, be, drinking with friends, you know, it's silly little touchstones like that, that actually form in the brain. They form patterns yeah. in the brain. Yeah. It's funny. The whole repeat thing is almost like going back to id, right? So yes. like, I, have, yes. I have children and my daughter, well, I remember doing this when I was a little girl. I remember I would play like Debbie Boone, you light up my life or juice. Newton <laughs> loves been a little bit hard on me or Dolly Parton 95. I can name all of them on oh, Dolly. Yep. over and over and over again. And now that I'm a mother, you know, if my daughter, you know, if I had to hear, you know, I think I've blocked it out. Oh, she was really into this Imogene Heap song for a while. Um, I thought that like my eyes started to twitch. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it the first time. By time 400. <laughs> but I wonder now that we're talking if it's reaching. So if when when we're spoken to and we hear that song that we're playing again, if we're not reaching that that place of purity that our children are at or that the children of this world are at, that's speaking to them in some way. It's making them feel something that that's positive. And kids, we all know that kids are creative in a real basic way. They don't have those those echoes in their head of yeah. you're not doing this right. Yeah. And maybe that's exactly what we're speaking to. And I and I love that you said that that's your mission is to you know talk to the people who were told that they maybe weren't good enough to express that that wasn't actually true. I really I really believe that the people who have told us that in our lives in the past really didn't know what they were talking about. And they were we were younger creatures. And we do get formed by these ideas. And I think my mission in life is to teach people that um, making mistakes is what all of us do. None of us are good enough. My books, when I write them, the first draft are literally the worst things 
in the whole world. The sentences don't even make sense. It's, it's just the fact that I've learned to keep going back and to keep fixing them. And I've become an excellent fixer yeah. of the things I create really badly, you know, and I love, I love helping people understand that, that art is messy and the creativity is really messy. And it's so great to be comfortable with mistakes and mess. I, I'm sure, you know, Kim Worker, uh-huh, yeah. uh, she wrote the, the, um, make it mighty ugly. And I love her philosophy of just looking at ugly things and making ugly things because the creativity is still there and that creativity makes them beautiful. Right. Um, right. I, it's almost like trying to put rules on something that has zero boundaries. It doesn't make yeah. sense. Yeah, so we've talked, we're talking about your writing process. So let's start, let's, you mentioned your novels. Let's, let's talk novels a bit. Um, you have, as I mentioned earlier, three books coming out this year. First off, (laughs) what, how is that physically (laughs) possible? (laughs) I wrote so much last year because, uh, uh, a book's lead time is generally six to 18 months. And it averages probably for me around eight or nine months with my publishers. Um, but that means, you know, nine months ago I was writing like crazy. I'm still writing like crazy, but, um, I kind of had two, two tracks right now in writing. I write romance novels. I wrote a five book, uh, knit lit romance series and Cypress hollow series. And right now I'm starting a new romance series set in a uh, different town, different area. So I maintain that, but I'm, I also write, um, more of the mainstream women's fiction, the, you know, the, the stories about family and home and, and pain and hope, which is, uh, my, which are my two favorite things to write about. So I have to maintain a foot basically in both of those streams all the time. So that means a lot of production. So your, your new romance series, um, the first book, this is Darling Songbirds, correct? Yes. This is out in March. So, and I'm assuming that it's already up for presale. Presales matter a lot to authors. So please go and, um, Go ahead and purchase that book now at, for whatever reason. I think it's like on iTunes. If yeah. you subscribe and write reviews, you get more, you know, you get more views. So please do that. Um, and also with, with places like Amazon, it really helps. Um, and then you've got um, another one, the one, the one who matters. So that's in April, right? Yeah. The ones who matter most that comes out a month later most. in April. Um, and is that, and that more one... of the relationship driven fiction? Yeah, that's relationship. That's women's relationship-driven fiction. That's a. Um, it's basically that's a, a little bit of a story about class. It's about a, a, a rich upper upper middle class woman, a white woman in Oakland who um, basically befriends a Hispanic bus driver because uh, her husband, her deceased husband, he dies at the very beginning, kind of places them together and they become family. I really love writing about chosen family, the, the family we bring and create around us, as well as blood-related family. So let me ask you this. So I was gonna, you talk about these two different genres, and you're writing them simultaneously, clearly, if you're yeah. having, because you have another romance <laughs> book coming out in September. Um, wrapping my head around this, it's kind of blowing my mind. Um, are those genres different for you creatively? Are, is writing about romance versus writing about relationships that may or may not include the aspect of a relationship that is that romantic love, do they come from different places from you creatively or do they feed different parts of you creatively? Or is it just sort of the same, like a different part of the same muscle? That's a really good question. I don't think anybody's ever asked that. And it is 
it's not even the same muscle. I mean, it's not like close to the same. It, I think it feels the same to me. Um, I don't write actually books simultaneously. I won't be writing two books on the same day, okay. but I do, I do do it. So like, you know, th- for three or four weeks, I'll be, I'll be focusing on one book and then three or four weeks I'll be focusing solely on the next book just because I can't remember the story right. well enough if I'm bebopping yeah. in and out. Yeah. But I've, I've learned in the last couple of mainstream books that I've written that basically I'm writing romances and that everything comes down. I think everything in our lives comes down to love, right? I mean, that sounds, that sounds cheesy, but that's what it comes down to. And, um, the book that came out last year was called splinters of light. And it was about, uh, uh, twin sisters. One finds out she has a terrible disease and uh, the other one doesn't have it. Yeah. And I realized that as I was writing that, I, I was trying to find the heart of this book and I realized it was the romance between the two sisters, the the love that they were balancing and having, and, you know, they'd always fought, but, you know, in this moment they have to come together. And it was, it was, it wasn't romantic love, but it was the same kind of passion. Mm-hmm. Um, the same with the friends in the new book, the ones who matter most It's the same kind of passion that drives all of our lives is exactly the same as the passion in a romance. The when, when two people find each other and, and hopefully have a lot of reasons to be pushed apart, but can't help being drawn together and looking into what that is. And that just, I mean, that just happens in our relationships everywhere. So I yeah. think that I, I, that's my favorite thing to write about is that coming together of two souls, whether that's romantically or just, um, closely as friendships. So give me a, give us a picture of your childhood in a way. Um, let me be a little more specific. There's a probably common conception that women or little girls dream about love and marriage and weddings and and all of the probably more shallow aspects of of love and then you grow up to become a romance author did your I shouldn't have said and then comma you came (laughs) up or semicolon you you grew up and became a romance author did your did you gravitate towards this particular theme because you had those same dreams or was there something else as a as a child that you found creatively inspiring that sort of led you to this path to focus on this aspect of love? Uh, as a child I was definitely most drawn to the love story, you know, Gone with the Wind when I was 12 just completely rocked my world. And, uh, Anne of Green Gables and her, the the love affair with her and and Gilbert and the seven book series that followed, um, was what I was all about. Um, but I, I, I didn't come to romance that way. I came to writing from a real, um, stuffy position, a real academic position. I went to grad school. I got my master's in creative writing. And when I was in grad school, Oh my gosh, if I had said I was, I wanted to write romance and if I had confessed that I read romance, I I was curious about that. Yeah. The eye rolls the eyes would have popped out of the heads and smacked me up on the side of my head. You know, they, they just would have been so disparaging of that. And because, you know, in, in, in my grad school, I went to Mills college, which I loved You know, I wouldn't give that experience up, but you don't talk about commercial fiction. You don't talk about genre fiction. You talk about great literature and we were all there to write great literature. And I left that program and then I, 
I failed at writing great literature for the next seven years because I was so, I was so kind of um, broken from that experience of the critiques and the, I'm not good enough and I'm not writing the great American novel. Of course I was. And I was 24 years old. What did I know about the world? And, um, and then in 2006 on Halloween, I heard uh, about this creative project called National Novel Writing Month. Right, right. It's the month of November where you write a novel in 30 days, which, um, and you know, so I was hearing about it on Halloween the day that before November. That breaks me on the hives just even hearing that. Go on. <laughs> Now I do it all the time, but, but, uh, and I, and I thought to myself, I just had this real elitist snobby thought, which yeah. was who would write a novel in 30 days. That's a ridiculous idea. Yeah. And then of course I'm, you know, tapping on my computer and I joined within 30 minutes. Cause and it unlocked I, something with they knew clearly. It absolutely yeah. did because I knew that if I had to write a novel in 30 days, that it had to be something that I, it had to be about something that I loved. I couldn't try to be writing high, perfect, wonderful eye-popping literature, I had to write something fast. And there were things that I loved. I loved romance. I'd always read it. Um, I loved thinking about it. And I loved knitting. Knitting has always been the background music of my life. So um, this was before Knitlet was really a thing. I think Kate Jacobs' book wasn't even out yet or was coming out the next year. Um, So I pitted this uh, sheep rancher, handsome sheep rancher, against the knitter. And I I, I used to say that, you know, they, they, they both need wool, but not to generate heat because they generate enough of their own. So I played these two characters off each other through this book. And I thought that it was terrible writing. I spent 30 days writing terrible words. And that's what National Novel Writing Month encourages you to do. They talk about quantity, not quality. You can fix the quality later. And the surprising thing was, is I finished the challenge. I wrote the the requisite number of words, 50,000 words. I put the period on it and I put it away for a while and I just thought that was a fun mark. And then I pulled it out one day and it was actually good writing. Mm-hmm. And that was the, the breakthrough that I hadn't seen coming is that your voice is your voice. Your creativity is your creativity, no matter if you're doing it fast or slow. It might be a little bit more sloppy, but that is yeah. easy to clean up. And so this book that I hadn't I hadn't known would be good, ended up being the book that I edited, revised, sent out. I got my agent and it went to auction in a bidding deal to HarperCollins in a three book deal, which was the beginning of the Cypress Hollow series. And I had never seen that coming because it was this freed writing in which I wasn't worried about quality that I did the best work I'd ever done because I was comfortable. I wasn't, I didn't feel my master's, um, uh, uh, co- what do you call them? Co-students looking over my shoulder. Yeah. Judge me. I just, I just, I didn't feel judged. I just wrote. And that was what changed everything for me. And now that is still the way I do all of my drafts. I write them super, super fast. And I hate writing them. I'm not a big fan of first drafts, but the revision I think is where the beauty and the magic happens. And I think that that is something I never would have learned if I hadn't finished a book. I'd never been able to finish one. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that the subject matter had anything to do with that? I mean, would, you've, you've mentioned knitting a couple times, and obviously, I knew I know of knitting, um, and and I'm always interested. <laughs> I'm, I'm so interested. I've met so many phenomenal people because of knitting that don't all necessarily have anything to do with it professionally. I mean, rock stars and Wait. playwrights and artists and. Oh, gosh publishing industry to me that's been that's been the biggest gift that knitting is giving to me I mean obviously like I have a passion for that particular way of expressing myself but Mm -hmm. way above that comes the world that it has opened up to me from friends across the internet to 
getting to have conversations like I'm having with you today. You know, this wouldn't be happening if you weren't a keynote speaker at a conference at Vognating Live that we were both at. Um, So even though the focus of our conversation today hasn't been about knitting, that's been sort of, you know, no pun intended, but the tie, the tie that binds. And so I'm wondering (laughs) if knitting itself has opened up a portion of your mind creatively, or if when you were writing this particular novel, if you could sit back and sort of let this other sort of like inherent creative thing that had been in your life since you were a child kind of be in the driver's seat? Yes, I think that that's exactly right. I didn't have to worry about the background for this book. I chose pretty arbitrarily the night before I started the book um, knitting to be the background. And because of that, because it was so innate and in my body and brain and soul, I didn't have to think about incorporating it. I was, I was incorporating it into the book because I knew it so well. And, um, I always think of what Stephanie Pearl McPhee says about, I can't quote it directly, but, um, the same way that's that stitches, you know, a few stitches knitted every day, they add up to a sweater. Yeah. It's yeah. really true that a few words written a day inevitably add up to books. And the the thing that um I'm also super fascinated with is this idea that the thing that we're called to do the most generally is the thing that we throw up the most resistance around. Mm. And for, for whatever reason, I'm actually exploring that in an essay right now, but resistance is fascinating that, um, the thing that you just can't quite make yourself do, that's the hardest to make yourself do when you're starting out on your creative journey. That's probably the thing you do need to do. And writers have it especially bad. I think we we do block ourselves from coming to the page because we think that when we get there, we have to write something good. Um, and throwing that out the window and just learning that words add up to books, just like stitches add up to sweaters um, was something super pivotal in my, in my creative process learning and, and learning to finally finish. There was a, there was a time in my life where I couldn't finish a sweater either. I just didn't have the confidence just the same way I didn't have the confidence to finish books. And there was one there, I was writing one book, um, wishes and stitches. I think it was the third book in the series. And in that series, uh, the, the, every, in every book, the narrative, the, um, main character is knitting a project throughout the book. And I was, um, creating the patterns to that project as I was writing the book. So I would literally be knitting the same sweater that the heroine was knitting Hmm. and I would have these same problems. And at one point I was, (laughs) I had the project on my lap and I was just kind of mindlessly knitting it while I was thinking about something. And I went backwards in the draft to find something. And I looked down and I had started thinking. Mm-hmm. I was going backwards just because I was going backwards in the book. My brain actually was going, doing the same thing while I was knitting. So it was, it was kind so of fascinating. is unknitting for those non-knitters. Yes, un- unknitting, going, going the opposite way. So yeah. when my brain went the opposite way in the book, so did my hands. And it was, it was a real brain-hand connection. So, you, um, so you, you link the creative aspects in your life. Not, and I would imagine not just when you're writing about knitting. Yeah, exactly. I normally have some kind of... Well, I think that I think that every project is somehow connected to another project, even if it's not knitting. Um, one book in particular, I remember 
a couple years ago, um, required me to be in the garden, which was a crazy leap for me. I didn't, I didn't garden. Mm-hmm. I never had felt that need. And, uh, and suddenly I was out there for the entire book. And then I finished the book and the garden was pretty much finished and I watered it and the season was over and it just fell apart because I never went back to it. That was, that creative part was over. You know, of course now I cleaned it up and I keep some tomatoes in there, but that's, that's yeah. about it. Yeah. That those passions do overlap. Do you find that? Oh, 100%. 100%. Yeah. That, I think that that's kind of my, you know, p- kind of part of the message that I keep trying to s- sort of like scream on high is that, um, I mean, I happen to work in an industry where the public misconception of of knitting or crochet or crafting is, oh, that's adorable. You know, I'll yeah. have conversations with executives, um, mostly male, but not always, Um and if I said I was a professional knitter, professional crochet, or even if I throw the word designer, um, there's a kind of almost a like verbal pat on the head. Do you know what's even worse? If you say I write books and they say about what and you say knitting romances. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean. People just, they walk right away. They just turn around and I, they don't even say goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> so what, and so for me, because, you know, I'm kind of an asshole sometimes and I'm a double Scorpio and I'm just like oh really then I'll say yeah I've had uh you know three television shows uh and written 12 books on the subject and I'm also oh wait I'm a mentor over at South by Southwest maybe you should stop by when your tech company is there because you know what like it's amazing how dare you (laughs) like how dare no but I just feel like I feel like for those of us that work in these industries that are considered women's work, and obviously like the general writer genre is not women's work, but your personal genre within that genre is very female-centric. I feel like it's our job to put it out there that these are just methods of either entrepreneurship or creativity. What we do with it is what you should be t- paying attention to. Exactly. I love that. And I'm going to take a deep breath and I'm going to come down. <laughs> I wanna, Girl. <laughs> I want to change uh, I want to change subjects a bit and um, I want to talk about pain, which uh, that sounded so goth coming on. That's not enough. But I was I was reading, well, I've read, you know, I've seen you post a couple times on Facebook about having you know really bad migraines. Um and then I also these aren't related at all, but um, I also know that you work as a 911 dispatcher um, and also work in a firehouse. And, um, you know, my my brother is um, a paramedic firefighter in, for Los Angeles. And I think about how different his brain works from mine. We have we th- process information differently. We express ourselves differently. Um and I'm, and I'm, I've always wondered if, um, bec- if that's because he's able to compartmentalize in a way that I can't, um, yeah. doing the, the job that he does. But you, you, my friend, are, are a definite, you shatter that sort of conception for me because those, your professions are so polar opposite of each other. I, so when I get, so my point that. is. I'll get around to it eventually. <laughs> you deal, so you've got your own physical pain that you deal with on upon occasion. And you're also working, um, part of your life you spend hearing and absorbing and perhaps to a certain extent feeling other people's pain. And so I'm wondering how, if at all, you translate that into your writing or into any of your 
create creative um, ventures. Do you are you able to use that? Is that how you can can you take that and can you write the sort of like darker, more painful um, aspects of your novels, or is it the opposite? Do you like some people watch really dark stuff and then they write comedy? You know? Yeah, I I think that's why. even in my romance novels, I can't write a light romance novel. They, they, they are pretty light, they, and all of my books end with hope um, because I think that's how, how we have to live this life. Um, but I think that is a definite product of what I do. Basically, I left my master's program, and I wanted to do anything that I could leave behind at the end of the day because I was going to try to write. And I thought, oh, you know, look at this 911 dispatch job. It pays more than teaching. So I applied, I got it, and it turned out that... Um, not very many people are good at this job, but I actually ended up being good at this job. I'm good at multitasking and I'm good at the compartmentalization. Uh, however, there is this thing for dispatchers in particular, we're the first responders. We are the first people that a person who's having the worst day of their lives will communicate with. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm the person who has to hear that first moment of pain when they realize their life just changed. Um, just, just the other day. And, uh, and I will give no specifics to not break any HIPAA laws, but I had a real bad um, baby call. And the baby calls are always the ones that are enormously difficult to let go of. Um, and as dispatchers, we always hear the very first moment we never, ever, ever have resolution. Um, every once in a while, you know, our firefighters will go visit somebody at the hospital and I'll know, oh, they lived or I'll hear, oh, they died. But that's that's pretty much all we get. So I think that's why I'm drawn in my writing to, to um, talking so much about pain and grief, because I've heard it in every language, in every voice, and love and grief always sound the same um, in very particular ways. So that when I'm writing the hardest moments, in my books, I do absolutely unlock that part of my heart in which I put all those emotions. You know, I can literally, one time I gave CPR instructions to five people in a row, caught back to back, five calls. Um, they all died. And then I went on to eat some oatmeal and that's what we do. We compartmentalize it, but I bring it out later and look at it and feel it and use it. And in doing that, um, I rewrite endings. The, the, the call I could never let go of again, disguised for HIPAA laws, but, um, a woman had had a very, very, very sick child, and she tried to kill both herself and the child yeah. um, because the child was dying anyway, and she decided not to live. Yeah. And then uh, she, they, they got her back. They, she woke up. And, of course, then she's prosecuted for murder and all these horrible other things. But, but I, I, just, I couldn't let go of that thought that she had the worst day of her life, and then it didn't end. And it bothered me so much that every once in a while a book, uh, you know, an idea will bother me so much that I have to write a book about it. So I wrote this fictional book about a fictional person, but gave her a life afterwards. What happened to her after, after that and gave her love and hope and family. So that's, so it almost seems uh, like that's your, that in a sense is a way of coping. Yeah, that is, I think my only way of coping. I don't usually find the need to discuss it with other people. Yeah. I don't call home and cry when I have a bad call. I just it just goes away. It goes into a pocket of my brain, but I do use it later. I, maybe that's how I exercise those demons, you know? And what's wonderful about that is that you're not only sort of going through this therapeutic exercise for yourself, but the result of it will almost undoubtedly help somebody else. That's the best part of my job. That's the part I love the most is when I get those emails or those letters. And that's what I... 
that's what I think is is another sort of key to this whole sort of creative ethos that we're a part of. Because, um, you know, I've heard musicians say similar things and filmmakers say similar things. When you're truly doing what you're passionate about and speaking your truth, and when I say speaking, that could be via guitar or knitting needles or paint. You have no idea what the reverberation on your community, known and unknown, will be. Yeah. And that, for me, is what it's really about. That is so exciting to me, you know? It, and and I find that's true with the with the the bigger mainstream books I write, like that book was Pack Up the Moon. But when I write my romances, um, there is there's a tendency for me as a you know a literature student to also um, have this small, very small amount of shame about it sometimes because that is drilled into me. And now, of course, I can say with my brain, you know, this is I'm writing feminist work about autonomous women you know, doing what they love. And that's one thing. But the other thing is, is that sometimes romance really is a place to relax. And I decided a long time ago that my highest goal was to provide comfort to someone who is in the hospital, either sitting with a loved one waiting for results or, or something like that, or actually in the hospital dealing with pain. I wanted, I figured that my highest calling in terms of those could be to provide, um, comfort and, distraction for someone in the hospital because I've been in those situations. Um, and that was so important to me. And I've actually received more than a couple of letters saying, I read your book when I was in the hospital and it, and it, and it got me through a few real hard hours. And I think that that's a huge, a a hugely wonderful, uh, it's an honor and a privilege to be able to do that. So, so not only interesting is that clearly what you gave her, I'm assuming it was a her for those Mm -hmm. few hours. Yeah. It's now coming back and fueling you again. Oh, see? Oh, you just blew my mind. <laughs> I have amazing. so enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for doing it. Um, I hope that you'll come to Austin or the next time in the I'm in the Bay Area that we can meet up in person. Um, this has been lovely. Thank you so much. Absolutely. I would love that, Vicki. Thank you so much. Okay. Take care. Rachel Heron's latest book, The Ones Who Matter Most, is out this month. She currently teaches writing extension workshops at both UC Berkeley and Stanford, and is a proud member of the NaNoWriMo Writers Board. For more information, please check out our show notes page at vickihowell.com craftish. Craftish is produced here in Austin, Texas by me and edited by Dave Campbell. Thanks again to our sponsor, Kitterly. Be sure to check out kitterly.com for all of your knitting and crochet kit needs, and keep your eyes peeled for my own line of kits launching through them on April 12th. Also, if you get a moment, please head over to iTunes and rate and review this podcast. It really helps us getting more visibility, which means more listeners, which then means that we can keep producing this show. We really appreciate it. If you're interested in any of my own projects, online courses, videos, live streams, or info on my latest book, We Garter Stitch, please check out my website vickihowell.com that's vicky with an e v-i-c-k-i-e howell.com and follow at vicky howell on social media until next time don't forget to make time to nurture pursue and wallow in your craft whatever it may be thank you so much for listening